This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's excellent, a great privilege to be sitting here with Andrew Satch in his office. To what have you been up today? I, well, this morning I've just been into London Christian School um, teaching about science and God because I, I used to be a scientist in a, well, I was a science student in a previous life, so I did a PhD in neuroscience. And it's a very long time ago, but people still always ask me to speak about science and faith. So today I was explaining why it makes sense to be a Christian in the face of the evidence of science. So I've got, for example, I bought a lemon squeezer, which I love partly because it's such a fantastic piece of technology, but I was using it to compare um, a lemon with one of the students in the class called Imogen, because in terms of materialism, Imogen and the lemon are made of mainly carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and a little bit of iron um, and so I was asking the children why is it okay to squeeze a lemon and it isn't really okay to squeeze Imogen mm. in, in this and we're talking about if we're Christian then there's a God who gives humans dignity and worth and value mm. and if there isn't a God then lemon atoms and Imogen atoms are really the same sort of thing mm. so it's yeah just a bit of fun but that's what that was my morning <laughs> that caught their attention did it I hope so <laughs> And we're sitting here at Proclamation Trust where you are a tutor at uh, the Cornhill. So I work two days a week at Cornhill and four days a week for Grace Church Greenwich. For how long have you been teaching here? Sure, this is my second year. Oh, yeah. Excellent. And where do you come from before? Have you always lived in London? No, I was, well, I was born in Bedford by mistake. For the only time in my life I was early for something. So I arrived two weeks early. My parents were at a dinner party yeah. and nobody knew the way to the hospital. <laughs> so born in Bedford and then grew up in Cambridgeshire. Uh-huh. So I grew up in a um, little town called Godmanchester, uh-huh. um, near Huntingdon. Uh-huh. Yes, I was in Cambridge for a year, and it is, uh, it's not uh, the most imagination-stirring <laughs> countryside, is it? It's quite flat. It is flat, the fens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you get the, the wind coming straight over from jolly Siberia through the fens to straight through on your bike as you ride through Cambridge. So how did you come to hear the gospel, Andrew? Well, I grew up going to local church I was in the church choir because my piano teacher told me to join and it was a I guess a sort of traditional English experience of religion but I didn't really hear much about the Lord Jesus and so teenage years I was quite cynical about it and I was investigating all sorts of different things so I had a friend at school who was a Quaker which is a sort of pantheism I think and then other friends who were atheists and I was reading Richard Dawkins before going up to study science at uni and I was pretty confused, I think, but I I probably was, I'd have called myself, well, I'd have called myself a Christian because I thought it was a cultural term, but in terms of what I believed, I was maybe an atheist, maybe a pantheist, I wasn't, you know, sure. And I went to university and got a letter from the Christian Union before I started. Now, this would never be allowed nowadays, but back in, when it, whatever it was, 1993, the Christian Union was given permission by the college to send out letters to all of the upcoming freshers saying, welcome to St John's, this is what you might like to pack for uni and by the way, we're from the CU and we're having a weekend away before term starts, would you like to come? And I thought, oh, it'll be full of other people who are in church choirs and it'll be a good way to get to know people. So I went on this weekend and I remember I'd never really read the Bible but I'd sort of heard that people did. So I said, you know, well, I need a Bible. And they said, oh, that, you know, that would be a good idea. I said, well, I've got the one from my christening. Is that okay? And, and the guy said, well, any Bible's okay, but we, you might want to get a modern translation. And we use a thing called the New International Version. And I asked my local vicar whether I could have 
borrow a new international version and he said oh I see it's going to be that kind of group is it because he was no real friend of Bible believing Christians yeah, so yeah. anyway I went to this weekend and I'd never really opened a Bible before and they were real Christians and it's the first time I've met people who had reasons for what they believed and who had a real consistency in the way they lived it out so they they spoke as if they knew God personally and then they acted as if they did, which is very strange to me, because mm. I just I just knew a sort of Sunday ritual mm. um, in a choir sort of church church stuff. Mm. So that was a surprise. And then I th that weekend, I think they told me, again, a really obvious thing I'd never thought about. Jesus was a real historical person, mm. and I thought he was just uh, he was just an aesthetic. So you know, if you're into stained glass windows and organ music, which I was a bit, but not that much, then it was for you. Or it was an ethic, you know, if you think that's a good way to live, which I partly did, apart from the places where I disagreed with Jesus, then great. But when I realised he was a historical person, I realised it was objective. So it was something happened 2,000 years ago, mm. and it was either, what the Christian said was either true or not true. Jesus either died or didn't. He either raised again or didn't. And it was true or false, independent of me. Mm. So I... And that made, you know, as a scientist, I thought, wow, this is objective. And I, I started to realize I wanted to know whether it was true. Mm. And as I looked into it, I started to think it probably was true. And then I was scared of it being true. Because <laughs> I thought, this will wreck my life. Wow. And so I sort of, yeah, I started off looking into it, got convinced, then tried to pull back. Wow. Really. Um, and the, the, the final thing in my conversion wasn't really, is this true? Because I that was an early stage it was is this good mm. and can I can I trust Jesus with my life Ooh. and so it was his character and whether he would wreck my life if I followed him that was the thing I needed persuading of so I think I was hiding God was looking mm. as Jesus says you know right. um, and he was persistent all right can you describe the transaction perhaps during which you saw yeah and he's good yeah well it was actually I think I was in some ways, I was converted by an atheist. They, I explain what I mean. Because I'd heard the gospel from Christians and I'd seen them live out the Christian life in front of me. But it was one night in my friend's room in Cambridge, um, one of those late night discussions that you have when you're 18 and you know there's no deadlines. And we're talking about the universe and life and everything. And I, I said to him, as an atheist, you know, to another atheist, can you give me one reason why? I should get up tomorrow morning and why it makes any difference and I wasn't, I wasn't depressed it was just a thought, thought experiment why would it matter if I didn't get up and he said well you know you might fail your degree and I was like well say what and then well you'll get a worse job and say what I mean why does it actually matter and we, neither of us could think of a single reason and I thought well the Christians know a reason hmm. and I think I just sort of became confronted with the total futility of my atheist life at, at the same time as I heard you know I knew about the Christian life um, and I realized I, I actually need to take this seriously and I remember praying that night for the first time really sincerely and even uh, like the first prayer where you think I'm just talking I'm just saying words into the air is, is anyone hearing this and so something like God I don't even know whether you can hear this and this is a bit strange but if you are there, I actually really do need to know. And I think maybe this just the beginnings of a willingness to 
humble myself like lord if you're there i i i do want to follow you if this is true but you have to help me mm. and it's just a very simple thing like that and i think i think i basically knew it was true and i knew jesus was good and my i think i thought if he would give his life for me why that doesn't make sense that he'd want to wreck my life you know people don't sacrifice themselves for you to destroy you and i had this sort of suspicion that if i follow jesus my life will become diminished and basically i didn't want to give up my sin and i thought you know um but that wasn't consistent with any of the christians i knew so they jesus wasn't wrecking their life mm. he loved them mm-hmm. um they loved him it was going it's obviously um they're flourishing and I realised I think Jesus loves me but the, the, really the question I often, I often explain it at weddings actually when it's very controversial obviously in our society but when a wife um, promises to submit herself to her husband and Paul says in Ephesians 5 it's like a Christian it's like the church following Jesus and also it's quite a big decision to say to somebody I'm going to put my life in your hands and that is what someone's doing at a, at a wedding day mm. I'm no longer I'm giving up my autonomy and I'm trusting you with my future, says the wife. Yeah. But actually that's what a Christian does. And I remember saying, thinking, I'm saying to Jesus, do I trust you to run my life better than I'm running it? And the answer is, I think I do actually. Because mm. I, I make a mess of it mm. and you're good. Mm. And the things that I think are better aren't better. And yeah, so it was that, that mm. sort of, but it was, I, was, I muddled through. It wasn't, a, it yes, wasn't all clear at once. It yeah, was a it sort of Damascus Road. Yeah. It's, it reminds you of that, uh, what does it say in Hebrews? Uh, he has saved once for all those who are being saved. We're sitting here in a, in a location. It's a delight to be sitting in, a, in, a, in, a, in offices devoted to the telling of this message. But also we're sitting, uh, we can triangulate our spot between F.B. Mayer, who was serving a church over there, Charles Spurgeon, who served a church down the road, mm. across the river here, Tyndale, was, uh, his New Testaments were burned, and Wilberforce met Newton, and these people who have all rejoiced in this same gospel. Um, mm. is there any, do you have any particular heroes to whom you've looked up? Yeah, I mean, actually, being a Christian really changed my view of history. Because I was an atheist scientist, I always thought that recent is better because we just know more biology than we used to know and we know more physics than we used to know. So who would want to ever read anything old because it's out of date? That, that used to be in my worldview. And so it's quite new to me as a Christian to realise history is valuable because God's been at work in it. Mm. And actually, there's people in the past who didn't have our blind spots who understand quite a lot more than we do. So mm. it's quite a shock. I remember when I was at college coming across Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan philosopher, and one of, you know, one of I think, the greatest philosophers in the West and in America, and reading his stuff about the will and how we make decisions. and and then reading more recent stuff on it and realising that they just ignored all of the insights that Edwards had had. So it wasn't, the the most recent book about how we make decisions isn't better than the old one because it's so shaped by our obsession with autonomy that we have in the 21st century. So yeah, Jonathan Edwards was really helpful. I remember Mike Ovey, my college principal at Oak Hill, introducing us to Athanasius and really helpful in defending penal substitution so the idea that Christ was punished instead of us as a swap which is an idea that's really under attack at the moment you know Steve Chalk's mm. against it the Bishop Buckingham's against it and Athanasius explains that God had to punish Jesus in our place 
because of his truthfulness. Because in the Garden of Eden, he said to Adam and Eve about the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Satan says, you won't surely die. And Athanasius asked the question, so Adam eats of the fruit, what's going to happen? Is he going to die or not? So let's imagine God says, oh, I don't need you know, sacrifice, I can just forgive you. I'm a forgiving kind of God. I tell you what, even though you've messed up, you don't need to die. Athanasius saw that was unthinkable because actually, if, he, if God did that, who, who were you to trust in the garden? Satan. Hmm. Satan was telling the truth. You, you won't die actually, God's just bluffing. So he saw that God's truthfulness was at stake. If God had said, sin will have this consequence, and then just waves it, he's going back on his word. So Athanasius says, you know, it was unthinkable that man having transgressed would not die. So what was God to do? And so the, the path of loving rescue couldn't be at the expense of God's justice and his truth. Mm. Hence, there had to be a substitute. So that you know, is just a brilliant argument. And it was penned in the fourth century and but absolutely compelling mm. and, and really useful in modern day defense of a doctrine that's under attack. So yes, yes, yes. Athanasius, I love, um, remember being excited about the Reformation about which I knew almost nothing. So, you know, at school I just did all the sciences, wasn't interested in history at all. Mm. And so I've been playing catch up really as a Christian. <laughs> who's been someone who's been an inspiration in your own life? I was converted in Cambridge um, and Mark Ashton was the vicar of St Andrew the Great and oh. he was a huge influence. I came to do the Cornhill training course in 2000 mm. and learnt from David Chapman, who oh, was great. fantastic. And then for 17 years I was on the staff of St Helens Bishopsgate where William Taylor was mm. um, our leader and I learned a huge amount from him. So I probably, yeah, in my own life it would be Mark and David and yeah. William be three of the huge influences. Now you're, um, you've written a number of books, you've written a Dig Deeper and Even Deeper, is that yeah. right? Books with decreasingly imaginative titles. <laughs> uh, yeah. But also you've written um, a the uh, extraordinary Pierce, well, you're a co-writer along with Mike Ovey and Steve Jeffrey of uh, Pierce for Our Transgressions, in which you dealt with this uh, extraordinary uh, challenge on the real heart of the gospel. Um, uh, the, mm -hmm. When you went into that project, did you go in saying, I know exactly what I'm going to say, or was it there that you discovered Athanasius? Uh, how much did you come in knowing what you were going to say, and how much did you come out learning through it? Yeah, I mean, we, Steve and I were just students kill at the time but we had more time and Mike Avey had a big brain and was down the corridor so you know we we worked there and then knocked on his door a lot and Gary Williams as well was always was readily consultable so we learnt lots doing it I think it's quite it was unsettling so we're looking at the ways in which people are arguing against biblical doctrine and some of it does shake you so I was glad to do it together so I remember you, know, you think, what's your best argument in the Bible for Jesus was punished in our place? And we thought, well, Isaiah 53, you know, that's absolutely clear. So we actually thought, let's put our best argument in the title. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions. Um, then we came across an Old Testament scholar called Wybray, and he says, oh, no, no, evangelicals have totally misunderstood this verse. When it says pierced for our transgressions, it doesn't mean as a swap or a substitution, it just means as a result of. So Jesus was pierced as a result of human transgressions. In the same way as you could say, in the Holocaust, Jewish people were gassed to death 
as a result of Hitler's transgressions. They were gassed for his transgressions. It doesn't mean they were a swab. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, this was a text I thought was absolutely safe. And now it's really under, you know, maybe it doesn't mean that after all. And it sort of shakes your confidence in the Bible until you just read it carefully. And I love the fact that you don't have to be a great scholar to um, defend the truth. You just have to read the Bible carefully. Because when you look back at Isaiah 53 and you think, no, um, why base argument doesn't work at all? Because it's not just he was pierced because of what I did, but I receive healing and peace because of what he did. It's a two-way swap. Mm. And then you discovered it wasn't just he was a victim of human injustice, but the Lord has caused to lay on him the iniquity of us all. It was God's intention. Mm. Um, and then you discover that the language of the sacrificial system is used. He made his soul a sin offering. Um, and as a result comes justification. And, and you just think, ah, oh, actually, it sounded convincing. But when you look closely, the Bible does say what Christians have always thought it said, that he was a swap for us. So it was, it was unsettling. And then it gave us an even more confidence, I think, that this really is true and wonderful. That's a that's a, a well. Thank you for doing that. For going, you've gone through that so that we don't have to, which is very helpful. Thank you. Mm. You're serving the church in the much the same way that the dig deeper book is doing. Your your intention is to draw people into that which uh, is is available to us in the work of Christ, mm. which is obviously the work of uh, of the of the church. I had uh, my my wife had a, a great aunt who lived through the Blitz, and she said that. Um, the, the father in the family was this seemed to be a somewhat passive man but on a Sunday evening he would get the family together and say shh now be quiet and he'd put on the wireless and they would listen to Mr Churchill and he would remind the nation why we're doing this hmm. and they'd go into the week re-envisioned the nation would be re-envisioned this is why we're doing it and hmm. uh, this is uh, this is what you've done you're, you're drawing people back to this is what's happened this is why we're doing it and as such establishing feeding people for for valleys and peaks yes fantastic mm. excellent now um what's uh, what's exciting you presently what what's uh, what's new with you presently i think what i probably look this is true of every question isn't it but whatever bit of the bible you're currently in is the bit that excites you so we're in our small groups in greenwich we're just finishing one peter in fact we finished it yesterday in our small groups one peter is fantastic and encouraging Christians. Peter's saying, be really different, be holy, be like our God. Don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But with being different comes grief because people don't like you being different. And mm. so Peter's readers were being slandered and abused and mistreated precisely because they didn't conform. So there's a really strong reflex action when, I mean, it's like if, you, if your hand is in a fire, it, you pull it back just instantly the the neural pathway doesn't even go through your brain it just goes through your spinal cord if you remember the diagram from GCSE biology so the the pain receptors you know out come out your hand comes out the fire and so it's an instinct if I'm having a hard time for being a Christian something is wrong let's withdraw and the more different we are and the more we speak out for the gospel the more we get grief and our instinctive response to grief is withdraw mm. and Peter is basically trying to overcome that reflex and say no keep your hand in the fire and the whole letter is full of the way that a Christian can rewire our understanding so that we think suffering is expected and unsurprising mm. and it is the way that the Lord Jesus went. Mm. He suffered but then 
was raised to glory. So this is the right path to be on. Mm. And I, yeah, I think it is a, I mean, all the Bible is always relevant for all time, but I think there's a lot of self-censorship of Christians in our world. So it's not that lots of us are arrested, but we're just, it's enough that we're intimidated that we might be arrested. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want the police to look into me for inequality or mm. my HR department to come down me or, and they might do, so I'll just keep my head down. Mm. And it's the, it's the possibility of trouble mm. and we shut up. And Peter says, in the face of trouble, speak out. Oh, gosh. Um, so I think it's been really timely for us. Fantastic. Yeah, it's superb. I, I read something from Spurgeon the other day. He said that uh, God is too good to be, <laughs> to be unkind. And uh, when we can't trace his hand, we must trust his heart. But he's saying that that's mm. the believer. The believer does that. And, of course, mm. um, the... <laughs> The unbeliever has no such hope, and therefore that stance is just is just inconsistent with the truth. Now, uh, you're someone who is uh, you've looked into these texts in, in real detail. You have a PhD in neuroscience, and, and you are now a tutor of a theological program. What's, what would your advice be to people listening to to this? Uh, I mean, I'm a young church leader with. I don't know if I can give my my word to the nations. It's, it's a bit, pop, <laughs> bit, bit pompous, but I think the thing that I I love is, I mean, it's just too obvious even to say, but because the Bible is always teaching us, we're always learning, it's always fresh. And I, I just found some advice I had, I think probably through being at St. Helens and doing Cornhill was give yourself to one book of the Bible at a time mm. and really get to know it well. So rather than just dotting around, just have this year I'm going to be in. So I've been in one Peter and I've been in one and two kings in preaching for, well, the joke in the office is whenever I do a weekend anywhere, it's gonna be on one and two kings, which is basically true, because that's just what I'm doing at the moment. So Elijah and Elisha are two mm. of my favorite characters in the Bible, apart from Jesus at the moment, because I'm in one and two kings. But there's lots of stuff in one and two kings that I just really didn't know or didn't know well, always quite fresh to me. And so I think a bit like in, in the Christian life, it's obviously you've got the whole Bible, but I think of it as almost like two bookshelves of Bible books. So there's the, the whole Bible over here, and then one by one I get to know a book well enough that I transfer it to the At My Fingertips Bible. And my At My Fingertips Bible is just gradually building up. So for me it would be Mark's Gospel I know quite well, and Exodus I know quite well, and One and Two Kings I know quite well, and One Peter I know quite well. And I hope in my life one by one, there'll be a book that I don't really know, like Habakkuk, I mean, I've preached it a bit, but I don't really know it, or Leviticus, I'm gonna try and get into later this year. But wouldn't it be great to spend long enough Leviticus that I really start to see how it works, and and then gradually it gets transferred into my at my fingertips Bible canon. And it, mm -hmm. it will definitely take me my lifetime to get all 66 from mm -hmm. over here to over here. Mm -hmm. But I think one at a time. So I really have enjoyed drilling down into the same book time and time again over a year. Mm. Um, so at the moment, yeah, one Peter, one and two Kings. Mm. Later this year, Leviticus, God willing. It's fascinating. Um, so on a daily basis, you're you're going back into them. Yeah, and, and even just teaching things more than once. So the first time you preach it, it's okay. The second time you preach it, you've got all the extra reflection time, and then and then people gave you feedback when you first taught it, and then you have tried to see it apply in situations in your life since you preached it. So the second time you mm. preach it is better. Mm. So if if there can be ways of of visiting the same thing more than once, 
So I say I sometimes speak away. So I did the sorted youth conference. Um, it was on one of two things. Um, I'm about to do a youth and children's work workers conference, and it's going to be on one Peter. You know, I'm I'm, I'm deliberately doing the same stuff that we did in small group, or the same stuff we're doing in sermons, because I know that if I keep coming back to it, it's going to get sharper and sharper and clearer and clearer for me. Um, I know that points. I, I found recently I preached the same sermon I think three times, and the third time, and my family were there saying that was really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it, it does get better. It really does. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and uh, extraordinarily, if you go through the British Museum just up the road there, we can take you to see stones which relate to Jehu and, uh, and to Elijah, hmm. Lentz, uh, from, and, and so on. Any commentaries you particularly recommend? I think the commentaries, I used to sort of go to them too quickly because you sort of don't have confidence that you'll understand it for yourself. And I was given the advice, don't go to a commentary before you've really, really wrestled with it yourself. And it, it just is more, one and two kings is more exciting than commentaries on one and two kings, even though the commentaries can be good. Mm. So I think spend the time yourself in the text. And the other bit of advice I had was never use only one commentary. Mm. So if you use one commentary, you assume they're right and you look at the Bible less, you just read the commentary. Mm. If you look at two commentaries, they don't agree with each other. And how do you decide who's right? We have to look at the text. Mm -hmm. So two commentaries makes you look at the text more because you're evaluating these two different views. What does it really say? Which person is right? Um, whereas one commentary, the worst thing of all is study Bibles because I'm just not disciplined enough to stop my eye just dri dipping down <laughs> and finding the answer. But it might not be the answer, it's just right. somebody else is telling me what it is yes, rather yes. than me wrestling with the text. So yes. I, do, I put a, Bible, a study Bible on the shelf in a locked cupboard and only allow yourself to open it after you thought about yeah. the Bible first. Yes, yes. I, I heard um, Tim Keller say, if you only read one person, you become a clone. Mm. If you read two people, you become confused. If you read ten people, you might get a voice. <laughs> so it was an interesting way of putting it. But it is encouraging. I haven't isn't it? read ten people. He's, he reads more than I do. But yeah, <laughs> excellent. Well, it's been superb to have some time with you, Andrew. Thank let you. Me let you go into your extraordinarily uh, unique day in life. <laughs> Thank you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours, and walks, please go to ChristianHeritageLondon.org.